All right, everyone, we're back with episode 40 of the Great Divide podcast, part two of our deep dive discussion of Steeltown. We're not going to waste any time, so let's just jump right back into where we left off. And that is, coincidentally enough, with the song Steeltown. So take it away, Svine. Steeltown. This is yet another ominous song. It's also a masterpiece. I guess we all know the background of this song, and I'll start with a quote by Stuart from Melody Maker, yet again, 1984, and uh, it reads, The steel town is Corby, said Stuart, growing visibly agitated. It's a big new town built around a steel mill. All these Scottish guys went there for work, a traveling population who no longer have any work at all. Norman Tebbit said, get on your bikes and find work. Six years later, the mills closed down. It does worry me, not so much that the industry is breaking down, it's the breaking down of people. It's how I felt about industry in my own area dying out, and in places like Liverpool, thinking what it must have been like to leave your family, get a job, bring the family down to live in this new town, and then it happens. It's really fucking sad. So uh, as the as the piece said, that he was sitting in very agitated talking about this, and then there's a follow-up from Cream magazine in 85. Uh, Adamson says it was inspired by the plight of an English town called Corby, quote, that had a brand new steel mill. People were encouraged to go and work there with the promise they'd have jobs for years and years. Then about two years ago, the government decided to shut the mill down, leaving all these itinerant workers and their families in the shit. They're all unemployed now, which is very sad. Brave new world. And that's the story you get in the song. And uh, as we heard, Stuart referred to Corby as the real town, real life steel town, which is more or less a mining town located in mid England. But it still, I guess, to this day has a very strong Scottish flair as thousands of Scots went south during the 50s and 60s to get a job there. And Corby had a blooming mining industry. Uh, so people in Corby still have a dialect which sounds more Scottish than English and there are many Scottish pubs and you will find supporter clubs for Glasgow Rangers and Celtic which are the two big football clubs from Glasgow and in the 80s most of the mines were closed by Maggie Thatcher and that created the poverty the despair that we've all heard about and Corby was hit particularly hard so that feeling of despair and not knowing what to do was something that the band wanted to convey on Steel Town and uh, as we heard, Oliver Hunter told us uh, last time, or th- the time before, depending on how this episode worked out, uh, in a speak pipe. He, he lives only 20 miles from Corby. And I remember him telling me back in the day that it was a ghastly place and that apparently there's still lots of Scottish people there that came down for work. And there's also lots of quote-unquote weird people <laughs> so, that just uh, are attracted to these places. And... Uh, so the story kind of starts with uh, with the the end. It starts with the end that um, 
here I stand at the end of everything. Finally, the dream has gone. Nothing is to hang upon. So the, uh, it, it's over. And then he remembers back. But uh, I always found the line, finally, the dream is gone, is, is one that, that hits me very hard. It's, it's like the pain got so bad watching your town and your means of support just wither away. And you reach a point where even though you want the plant to stay open, you get so tired, you want you want it to close almost. Uh, yeah. it, um, it's, uh, it, it, it's about the wear and tear. So we talked about the East of Eden being in a bad situation and waiting for a break. And in this song, the break never came. And uh, to, to quote John Lennon, the dream is over. But he was not talking about the end of the Beatles. He's talking about the end of uh, the, the steel mills and the factories and the work you have and you have no prospects. Probably nothing to return home to. This is your home and uh, pretty much the end of the road. So that, that that makes this a very bleak description. It doesn't provide a way out. It's not meant to provide a, a way out. It's anger. This is a very angry song. And it's underpinned musically. And I love the way the song works. It It's brooding. Someone is standing there brooding, talking about how it all ended. And it, it intensifies as he thinks back. And I just love that verse with... Um, all the landscape was the mill, grim as the reaper with a heart like hell and river of bodies flowing with the bell. But also here was the future for hands of skill. So you kind of see the grimness, you see how desolate it is, and you see uh, kind of how how things will go. But there's also a future there. As long as you can work, you have a place in this uh, this heart like hell. Yeah, because they're kind of building the place at the time, and they came they came and made that place their own. Yeah. Probably was only after the fact that they realized that that place was the Reaper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I guess there's a bit of hindsight there too. And also, we set the flame and it burned so blue. With open eyes, I watched it grow. So it is growing into something. And uh, I'm not sure if there's a point in the lyrics where everything just went bad. It's just uh, I went down and the heat turned on me. So that that's kind of implies that. Uh, the, the flame that burned so blue just uh, ended up burning the people instead of burning the steel, so to speak. Right. So I'm not going to take it super literal here, but it's a, it's a story and it's a musical crescendo. It builds up to the end. And I just have to say that the last 30 seconds of this song give me goosebumps. It gives me a lump to my throat, a tear <laughs> in my eye. It's so goddamn powerful and so yes. so dramatic so emotional so everything It's so intense at the end, where all these frustrations are coming to a total boil. And I get the sense of life and death. There's an inner and outer dramatics, and you, the band is firing on all cylinders. And then it reaches a dramatic end. And from one second to the next, there is silence. And I'm always shaken when that silence comes. It's just, you can't listen to that bit casually. It's absolutely impossible. And it leaves me shaken each and every time because I feel this situation I am in the song I'm living through this maybe I contextualize it a bit for my own benefit for you know situations I'm familiar with but I still feel it and then it just ends 
it yeah. all ends. And just musically, they're telling that's the end of the road. And what, what happens with the people? Is it the end of these people? Uh, musically, I get that vibe. So the song, in many ways, the the extremely honest depiction of going somewhere. And uh, this line from The Crossing also rings the back of my head. That through, uh, through pain and truth and hardship, you find out the things that really matter. And here you have the hardship, and uh, it was all for nothing. Talk about just making a 180 there. And uh, it, this song is just so powerful. And the way it builds, it starts very quietly and builds to that utter crescendo. So to me, this song, in many ways, is Big Country's magnum opus. And it's one of the most powerful statements they ever made. Yeah, it's... Uh... Yeah, it's a great, great review of the song. I can't add a ton to it, but of course I will. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but um, <clears throat> yeah, you say it very well. Uh, it's it, it's an incredible song, and I'm stumbling here already because there's just uh, so many of these songs just really take your breath away, and, and you're almost stunned by just the scope of them. Yeah, even though we prepare for these dissections, you could hear me stumble too. You know, how can I do this song justice? I can't. Well, once you yeah, once you get into really deeply into these songs again, after just listening to them maybe for many years, you just it, it's it's kind of nice actually, but it's also a little bit overwhelming and emotional just to to really be slapped in the face with how incredible these songs are and just how deep they are and in every respect, lyrically, musically, just incredible. But uh, one of the I think um, I'll start on the musical level, but. I think just as we've gotten great openings of songs uh, throughout this album, uh, especially so far, I think this also stands as one of the best musical openings of a big country song ever. I mean, that those opening guitar lines are just so incredible. They, they, they give, they've given me fits for years as far as having figuring them out. I don't know what it is. I just have never really been able to figure those those parts out. It's strange, but it's, it's the way Big Country is. Um, uh, Big Country's music has been for me, guitar-wise. They're the only band that really, really makes it difficult. Um, but uh, when I when I did the Leesburg thing, I was lucky enough to have Bruce and Jamie over here at, at my house, and they sat down, and I said, please show me how to play the opening to Steel Town. You guys show me how to play Steel now I'll film your hand positions. <laughs> That's the part that always kills me. And it was so incredible to see them sitting on the couch uh, in my house and playing it on acoustic guitars. And there it was. And uh, I was just watching their fingers. In fact, I I videotaped it so I could look at their fingers and I could figure it out for myself. And um, yeah, it it was just a great moment because that song and that album means so much to me. Uh, But it's just an incredible guitar part, incredible way to open the album. So driving, so powerful. And uh, the song just kind of continues in that vein. Um, the, now, one thing that I think is really interesting about this song musically, and, and this, this is kind of a thing that gets back to why this probably, these albums probably, or this album probably wasn't so successful commercially, and why the songs were difficult things to have for people to 
uh, the public at large to digest. Because at times, I w- listening to this song, I thought maybe this could have been a better single. I, it, yeah, it's dark, it's it's depressing, but it's it's so powerful and it, it's so more it's so immediately. There's so many catchy moments in the song from a riff perspective and, and even from a chorus perspective. But then I look at the song and I realize that the chorus doesn't even happen in the song until about two minutes and 40 seconds into the song, which is which is a lifetime for us for a single choice. I mean, the, the quote unquote suits will sit there and tell you, you got to get to that chorus within 40 seconds of a song and then you got to repeat that chorus over and over again. That's what makes a single. Well, with Steel Town. The chorus doesn't even start until many pop songs are are actually finished. <laughs> mm-hmm. You don't even get the first mention of the chorus, and and unlike other other songs where the chorus is repeated over and over and over again, the chorus in Steel Town really only happens. Uh, I mean, it, it's repeated often in the song, but it really only comes into the structure of the song twice. Uh, it first comes in, then we've got like another verse another what we call a pre-chorus and then it, it goes under that outro with this with the chorus again that you mentioned that's so powerful but um so yeah this song probably probably wouldn't have worked either but at the end of the day who cares it, it's perfect the way it is um it's this is another example too kind of like i mentioned in east of eden of one of those songs that starts out in a minor key and has these really interesting juxtapositions of major key parts and that's what we get in this song. We've got the minor key verses, which are dark. Uh, the whole setting the stage for for this place, and then we go into a major key when we get to the lines like. Uh, yeah, it's dark, but it almost it's almost like that major key shift is almost like uh, going backwards in time. You, you start at the beginning with, I think, is one of the most powerful lines on the whole album. And it's, maybe that doesn't mean much when it, with an album so full of them. But here I stand with my own kin at the end of everything. I mean, good Lord, how much more, how much more powerful and bleak can you get? So it's, that's the present. I'll, I'll, then, te- I'll tell you exactly how much more bleak you can get. <laughs> I'm sure you will. Finally, the dream is gone. I've, nothing, I've had enough of hanging on. Yeah, well, the, next, the next two line digs deeper down. It, you're right, it does. It does. <laughs> I've had enough of hanging on it, uh, especially. Okay, what's left then? Yeah. You have the, the last from, from full crescendo to silence. That's what hits me. Yeah, that's right. It, it's interesting that, um, though, that those verses almost sound like here we are in the present day. And then when they ship, shift into the major key portion, I came here with all my friends. It's like you're looking back in time to a period that was more hopeful to a period where you thought you were going to build something, you thought you were going to create a future for yourself. And I think that I think that's so great how, and I don't know if this was on his mind when he did it, but I, I think it probably was, at least subconsciously. It's so great how those the lyrics really reflect the, uh, the, the music in these songs, in this song so well, because you've got that hopeful feeling in the lyrics, and it's it's a more upbeat, major key type of feel. And as if there's some hope there that you can really accomplish something, and then you go back to the minor, minor stuff. <laughs> you know, um, we built all this with our own hands. Who could know we built on sand? Now it's barren all too soon. Another one of my favorite lines: "There is no miracle in ruin." Yeah. What a holy smokes! 
jeez, it just it it doesn't end. And then we go back to the looking back. We set the flame, and it burns so blue. You get what I'm saying. Um, it, it's just it's just just an incredible <laughs> onion of a song. There's so many layers to this song, and you could just keep peeling it and peeling it. And even 30 years later, you can you can keep peeling this and and finding new things about it. But the thing is that this, this these are not just words. These are actual, you know, I, 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 I get what the song is about and I get into it. Yeah. And, and that is the brilliance of the music to underpin the words. And that is the brilliance because sometimes you have great words and you have great music, but the music underpins the, word, uh, the words and it pulls you in. You can't just take it as poetry. It's a, it's a man's, I'm not going to say suicide letter, but it's one step back from it. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's the hopelessness and the... Just uh, there, there's nowhere left to go. Everything is over, and that just hits me every time. How it's the music and the lyrics and the symbiosis is so effective. One thing that I probably should have mentioned in the intro to this album, to this album too, but I think it's fitting to talk about it here in Steel Town, considering these lyrics, is that I don't think it's any uh, coincidence that Stewart got clean from alcohol after this album was finished. I think that, uh, in fact, this it's, they've talked about this album being done in quote-unquote a haze of alcohol, which, um, I mean, it seems kind of odd because when you think of that, you think of someone like the Stones just being rough and, and sloppy, and there's nothing sloppy about this album. Everything is incredibly focused and well thought out, but clearly... Stewart was having problems back then with alcohol mm-hmm. and it's absolutely clear and documented that he was. And, um, I don't think it's any coincidence that when he was having these difficulties, he was in a really dark place and he wrote these really dark, incredibly sad and hopeless type of lyrics. I think that's what he was feeling. And, I think you get that toward the end of his life when he went, unfortunately went back to the alcohol abuse and he went right back into that frame of mind. And I remember him saying that shortly before live or actually on the, on the live aid show, um, he decided that that was the time he was going to completely stop drinking at at live aid. And that was right after steel town had been released. Mm -hmm. And, uh, during that period when they were promoting steel town. So, it almost shouldn't be a surprise then that the sea, with the seer, they wanted to be more light and airy and not deal with this so much because he was probably trying to create a different life for himself at the time and a different viewpoint. But I think it's it's very notable and should be this album should be viewed in that context at, at times. Not that you want to revel in misery, but uh, it's hard not to in this album. But you got to think of the mindset of the person who wrote it at the time and. Clearly, this was like the height of Stewart's, at least from what I've read. You know, maybe someone who close to the situation might say that's not necessarily the case. But from everything I've ever read, Stewart was really probably at, his, at a bad place as far as his drinking. Yeah, but I think also it's well documented that people who are generally struggling or going through any kind of crisis uh, seem to create a lot of their best work in those uh, situations and uh, it doesn't need to be alcohol it can be anything it can be a breakthrough uh, I mean a breakup uh, and uh, 
or any kind of uh, thing. So my wife yeah. keeps waiting for Sting to fall back into hard times because she, <laughs> she, she used to be a big fan of the police and early uh, Sting. And uh, he would write stuff like every break you take. It was uh, coming from a dark place. And then he became happy and went into fluffy lounge jazz land. It's all the yoga that he does. Tantric sex. It's destroyed his yeah. It's destroyed his writing ability. Exactly. So fortunately, Stuart never got that far. But uh, there's something to be said for people going through tough times and then trying to make an artistic statement. It always uh, seemed to to be more fascinating, uh, strike a resonance with people. Yeah, yeah. And I guess musically, uh, the last thing I'll say about last couple of things I'll say about this song. My my favorite part is musically has always been that major key. Um, I just love the guitars going on back in the background. It's got a kind of a delay. Uh, I want to say almost U two ish, but you don't want to compare it's big country to U two because U two is the, they they looked Stewart and things that he did. So he was the innovator of these sounds, not not the Edge. And it's it's kind of funny how big country was. Um, and that's not to take away anything from the Edge because he did a lot of innovation himself. But as far as using a digital delay and that kind of thing, Stewart had used that before and. And um, it's kind of annoying how some people slagged this album at the time for sounding too much like U2, but it's probably parts like that in the in that pre-chorus of Steel Town where you've got the dun 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 But I love it. I love the I love the guitar in this song. And then back to Tony. There's there's this little cool bass run that I always would look for live to see if he would do it. It comes uh, with the hands with the courage to start anew. And it's this great little bass run that goes do, do, do. I love that little line. Just that one little moment is so cool and, and so memorable. But um, it, it's, yeah, the, the ending, as you mentioned, is just incredible. And you can you can hear the anvils just clashing and clanging at the end. And in fact, if you look at the Seer Live in New York video, the guy that directed that, I think it was Storm Thur- Thorgerson. Uh, there, there's almost like a little video for Steel Town that he does while that song is being played. And he's got a lot of great footage from uh, kind of old time, early 1900 footage. And he does that in the song during that portion. He's got like anvils slamming together at that portion of the song. And, it, and that's exactly what I see in my head when I hear it. Um, I think a lot of people will will agree and and i i feel that way too is that the best the song ever sounded live was the without the aid of a safety net version not i wouldn't necessarily want that in place of this the album version but there was something that i really loved about the way they did that live on that tour with the guitars were just distorted and vicious and not clean they're, they're all they're clean throughout the album version they're, they're they've got some bite to them but they're they're basically clean guitars but on that without the aid of a safety net tour they cranked up the distortion on that song, and uh, it was it was pretty pretty damn powerful. Favorite lyric of Steel Town. It's got to be for me. Here I stand with my own kin at the end of everything. It's just 
It's spine tingling. Mine is exactly the same as yours. Here I stand with my own kin at the end of everything. It kind of sets up the rest of the song perfectly. So where do you rank it? I rank it as number one. Ah, fantastic. Uh, this is a little bit of a discrepancy. I rank it as number five. And um, Ouch! I know, but no. see, you know, it, it, we're gonna we're gonna get back to the old <laughs> thing with every with every ranking. I know, and uh, it doesn't make sense really. To uh, th- these are really close. There, there are some songs that I that I can listen to and say that this song is better musically than this song. But for some reason, another song has more meaning to me personally, and that's why they're ranked higher. Um, we'll we'll get to those as we go. But uh, th- this is an amazing 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 song so it is number five is it's their magnum opus in my book yeah exactly all right so speaking of number ones this is where the rose is sown yeah this this song did lead me to the band and it's got incredibly special place in my heart um for many reasons uh, I mean uh, that that is obviously the main reason told the story many times on the show heard the song on the radio blown away by it uh, and I'd heard In a Big Country and Fields of Fire and I really liked them but it, this was a song that really made me run out and search for the album from which it was from and there was no going back after this and uh, you know, it, it meant so much to me at that Leesburg show <laughs> that I'll always bring up <laughs> into eternity but um, before I even came up on the stage to play, to sing chants with them and play with them, I was just so amazed because uh, I, I saw Mike's guitar and it, it what written on the guitar was The Dissidents Rock. And The Dissidents was the name of the band I was in years ago. And, uh, and underneath that, it said, Where the Rose is Sown. And someone had done an article on me locally here because... They had they had heard that uh, I was gonna this local guy was gonna open for Big Country the band that he always loved et cetera et cetera and they thought it would make a fun story so in that story I talked about how Where the Roses Sown was the first uh, song I ever heard et cetera and I think the guys read that and and they put that on the guitar and it was just so it was so amazingly touching and I'll never uh, be able to to express fully my gratitude to Bruce Watson for. For doing that, it just it just meant so much to me, and you know, thirty years later to, to see that and come full circle, and and there's the band right there in front of you, and the, and there's a little nod to you where the rose is sown written on the guitar. So that that makes the song mean even more to me years later. But even if that had never happened, uh, this song it just it's just I can't. Uh, <laughs> here we go again, you know, the stumbling and the the stammering. Um, this song probably is the most traditionally big country song on the album. I mean, this song is probably the one that sounds the most like some casual person would have expected big, a next, the next big country song to sound like. It's got the militaristic drumming. It's got the bagpipe sounding guitars that really just ring, ring through the song. And it's got that, anthemic feel to it more than the others it's it's got a very if you don't really listen to the lyrics too clearly it's almost got a raise your yeah. fist and pump your fist type of anthemic quality in fact 
it reminds me, it doesn't sound anything like this song, but as far as the feel, it reminds me a little bit of Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA because you get a lot of people who who just over here who would just say, yeah, born in the USA and then pump their fist. And yeah, they don't even read the the damn lyrics that are that are so depressing and about the horrors of war. And, and they don't grasp the fact that born in the USA is, is said completely sarcastically. <laughs> um, so, again, it's not the same song, obviously, here, but it, it is a similar type of thing. And then it's a it's a song about war. It's a song about the horrors of war. It's a song about the loss of war. And what what's so incredible about this song is that it, it does so much. It does so much in the four and a half minutes or whatever that that it lasts. Uh, from from a musical standpoint, and from a lyrical standpoint, and it's really an incredibly uh, clever song from Stewart lyrically. Uh, we we've got this this juxtaposition of two different voices, and it took me a while to figure that out because when when you hear the song. I mean, it's just Stewart singing both of these parts. Um, it maybe maybe it would have helped even more to get the point across if they had done something a little bit more obvious to the one portion of Stewart's vocals, which are meant to be like um, the chorus in the background of of people, the propaganda speaking, and then the second line is this kid we're assuming who's a young kid getting ready to join the army. Um, it almost would have been maybe more effective to get that point across that these were two actually different voices if they would have maybe done something differently with effects or something to the other voice, but maybe not. I, I mean, who cares? It's hmm. it's great the way it is. But we start out with with what really is this this feeling of nationalism and propaganda and and what happens when you're trying to rally the troops. We're at war. All the papers say we will win. I read today. We are strong. It wasn't us. We are right. Who started this? So we've got this feeling of we're the ones who are in the right. Uh, and it happens in every conflict. Some, sometimes it, it might be accurate, you know, but uh, in many, if not most, there, there's always the, the sense of it's just the perspective of the person. I mean, the, every, pers- every side says we are right. We are blessed by God. This is God is on our side. And I, I think one of the greatest lines in this opening stanza is when it says, uh, sound alarms, the big, the chorus says sound alarms of voices. And then the, the kid says the school bell rings. What a, what a great, uh, juxtaposition there. And that's all you need to know to, to say that this is a kid, the school bell rings. And, um, and then we get into a classic line again, this is like the propaganda machine, um, getting people fired up to go fight sons of men who stand like gods. We give life to feed the cause and run to ground our heathen foe. Our name will never die. This time will be forever. So that, that really right there, that, that with the exception of maybe that second line, it really paints that picture of the glory of war, the glory of, of mowing down your heathen foe. And, and if you do this, you will, you will be, you will stand like gods and, you will be more than just a man. And this is the kind of things you would hear from a side trying to rally people to join the cause, to join the good fight. And we continue into the second verse, you know, join up here. I wave goodbye. We need you. Oh, my breast size. And I challenge anyone to find a lyric from a rock band in the 1980s where the word breast is used 
in relation to a man who, who, who whose breast is sighing. And it, it just, it's just a great example of how different Big Country was, how, how they didn't have any peers lyrically or musically really at that time. I mean, what, what other band was writing lyrics like that? They, it almost has a, a very old-timey type of feel to it, but it, it just it works so beautifully. It's why I love them. It's, it's, it's that type of romanticism and that type of poetry that, that makes me just love the way Stuart writes and love these songs. Um, and, and throughout the song, you, you, get, you get more and more through this, uh, this chorus uh, trying to get the, the kid fired up and ready to go to fight and we're going to win, God's on our side. And he's excited. He's ready to go. He's he's really ready to fight the good fight. And then we get to the portion where reality sets in toward the end of the song, and it's it's really kind of an interesting contrast. So from from that, we don't hear the chorus anymore after they say we will win. We don't hear them anymore. And he says, "I wait here in this hole, playing poker with my soul." I hold the rifle close to me. It lights the way to keep me free. So now it's not this great grand idea of war and this big grandiose thing. Now he's, he's in a hole and the only thing he's got to keep him alive is a rifle. Right now it's not about fighting for God and for who's right and destroying the heathen foe. Now it's just staying alive. And he's saying, if I die in a combat zone, box me up and ship me home. If I die and still come home, lay me where the rose is sown. I mean, just stunning, stunning lyrics, and that's what it all com- has come down to um, for this kid. He's he's in he's in the hole, and we know what inevitably happens to him based on the next song. And what he's thinking of now is not, "I'm fighting a good fight. We're going to win. This is a great cause." He's not thinking that anymore. He's thinking about himself. He's thinking about his home. He doesn't want to die, and if he does, which he knows is a is a distinct possibility. He's got this very beautiful, poetic, lay me where the rose is sown. And that has nothing to do with war. That has nothing to do with the uh, propaganda that we've, the type of feel that we've heard earlier in the song that really got him interested in joining whatever branch of the service he joins here. But uh, it's, it's something beautiful, something something that's a part of nature, something that is totally removed from the the hole that he's now in. So I, I just think that's so brilliant that in this song we go through all of these moments. I mean, there's just nothing, there's no, there, there aren't songs like this. There aren't songs that were being made like this back then. I just, I mean, maybe there were, but I certainly can't think of anything that, that can hold up to the standard. Um, and then it's almost like that final stanza of sons of men who stand like gods is almost said in a mocking way. You know, it's almost like the chorus comes back and the guy's dead and, and, they're saying, you know, our name will never die. This time will be forever. But it's not. It's over. The poor kid is gone. He's dead. And uh, the glory of war is is gone by the end of the song. And, I, you know, so many bands from U2 and other bands wrote about war and things like that. And they did it in, in very interesting ways and, and believable ways. But I think other bands maybe just thought at the time there are some songs that I could think of offhand where it was almost like um, – sloganeering from the other side, almost kind of like a war is generic, war is bad type of thing that someone just felt, oh, this would be a cool thing to write about how awful war is, but they didn't really grasp it. They didn't really feel it. And there's probably no way you can grasp it unless you're actually a part of it. But I think Stewart does an amazing job in going so much more deeply 
into this and and doing it in such a beautiful, respectful, and and believable way. And <clears throat> I've pretty much just talked about the lyrics here, but musically, it's just it, it's just one of the toughest songs on the album. It, it's um, that opening chord progression is one of my favorite big country chord progressions that that just amazing it's 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 beautiful it's so much fun to play on guitar it's so cool to play on guitar and then the the solo is what that that actually is the thing that i think really hooked me on the song that the the solo that continues throughout the song it's like a it's really not a solo it's like a melodic piece that that is played throughout And it's just a it's just a great, powerful, melodic guitar moment. One of the most one of the best guitar moments I think Stewart has ever ever had is that lead part. Um, so we've got another great bridge in the song. I, I love how it slows down, and we've got the Evo going, and then the the drums start to build up again, and it's just um, it's just amazing playing throughout. It, it's one of those songs I just never get tired of. It, this is and that's kind of how I rank these songs in a way too is that do I ever get tired of playing this would I ever skip this song I really would never skip it it's not only because of what it means to me but I just love it that much it's it's one of the most it, it really encapsulates everything about big country that I love in this song it really and, and it's strangely saying all that it probably isn't my favorite big country song of all time but it's right up there but uh it's just got everything about big big country that I love and and once again, Tony's bass playing at the end is just mind-blowing uh, as they go into that outro. Uh, Steel Town had an incredible outro, and this song has another incredible outro. Incredible outros are another theme throughout this album and uh i always love when they played this live back then when they got into that outro part and they would just unleash like madmen running across the stage and and uh playing that part and just gets the hair on on your arms standing up and it, it's it's a song that means an incredible amount to me and uh it's it's just an incredible song on an incredible album drop the mic i'm done <laughs> I'm out of here. No, that's uh, that's amazing. It's. Um, are, are you sure you're done? <laughs> yes, I am drinking a big gulp of water after that. Yeah, I think you deserve that. No, that's um, that's fantastic. It is a fantastic song. It um, it's also a song that, although it did worse uh, than East of Eden did as a single, I think it's a better single choice, primarily because it has the hooks. That East of Eden doesn't have. It does have plenty of hooks. Plenty of hooks. It has the guitar hooks. It has the um, uh, the chorus works better. I think just the, the melodicness of it. It's just a very strong melodic song throughout. Does the singing melody uh, is very strong, and uh, and obviously it's uh, it's a song with a clear message, and the, that um, you know it, it was topical then and it's topical now. And you you talked about that that the, this. Um, 
this is one thing that will always be around with war and anti-war songs and some say it better than others and some will say war what is it good for absolutely nothing others will write where the rose is sown so this stands among the very best as far as describing war and not necessarily saying what is it good for absolutely nothing it goes on an individual level so this is about one guy and you follow this guy basically into the ground from the propaganda from being drafted from being sent out and sitting in his hole and from being laid toward the roses zone and that is uh, therein lies the strength of the song and the power of the song and that's why the song moves you so uh, I, I also thought that the cleverness of uh, the duality of the lyric the propaganda message opening first and the individual young man answering and when you read the lyrics it's pretty clear because they're separated so then you see oh yeah. I, I see what's going on here and that, that that's pretty cool there's it, that is very hard to grasp if you just listen right actually it's it's impossible to grasp if you just listen you might sense something but when you see it put up like it is in the lyric sheet then you know it so that is uh, perfect and I, I just gotta love the, the propaganda side which basically says we're at war we will win we are strong we are right if you read it down that, <laughs> right. that, that's what they're saying yeah. and uh, it's almost like uh, you see this mass uh, like political meetings in, uh, in former uh, political territories it, it kind of reminds me of that and it's the same in the second verse join up here we need you have no fear God will be and uh, although that is left with braver men so it's um, you have that that very strong propaganda and the fact that it actually explores both sides it's uh, it's very interesting I can't offhand think of a song that does it this way and certainly not that does it as good as this yeah. so uh, so I think that's pretty clear and you you sort of cover that, that excellently so um, uh, one thing that isn't printed in the lyric sheets but is um, but Stuart sings and that this is one of those little things he does that I love is uh, whenever he sings the chorus or the line before the guitar break that this time will be forever and he starts playing and he says Sha, then uh, I always go to the moment right before the four minute mark of the song where in place of the Sha, he yells out fuck uh, that, uh, it does <laughs> sound like that but I, I've never been convinced that that's what he says but it does I will admit that it does sound like it I am fairly convinced, and, uh, I, I, and I will cling to that story unless <laughs> unless someone with uh, great authority, and I think that person isn't there anymore, tells me otherwise. I'd like but, to believe it, so I'll just choose to believe it. <laughs> Maybe that's part of it, but it, it does sound like it, and it, it certainly isn't Shaw. No one can tell me that's a, a misfired Shaw. It's definitely well, glad, something more going on. Well, I'm glad you brought that up, actually, because this is, I don't know if this is the first it might be the first moment on the album where we get one of his shahs i'm not sure i know he's he's got that get up in east of eden which is obviously not a shah but it's kind of similar but it's kind of another thing that i was mentioning about it's got all the traditional big country things it's got this it's got those shahs it's got the chas it's got the guitars it's got the drums the bass yeah. and all that stuff but yeah it's it's definitely musically the closest so far to um to the previous album although flame of the west had its moments but that's just two fears really to, to make the comparison whereas Where the Rose Zone is also kind of a barnstormer song and good lord if you think of the album so far opening with Flame of the West and then um, East of Eden has a different 
kind of intensity. It, it manages to keep up the intensity, even though it isn't a barnstormer. And we all know Steel Town just built itself into a frenzy. And then you yeah. have where the Roses Zone. I mean, it's <laughs> thankfully they they quieted it down on the next song. I think the album really needed it because yeah. they've been going full tilt, and it's such a statement and uh, no sign of letting down. This song, it just goes from beginning to end, and it's uh, although a, a bit more paced than shall we say, Flame of the West, but uh, still, it's it's pretty fierce. So I, I like what Arlen I like what Arlen said in that episode that he gets rid of "Come Back to Me" and. Uh girl with gray eyes and just goes I don't know what you go into after Weather Roses in Ireland but like belief in the small man or something it's like man yeah I, I do need a little break after those four songs yeah yeah it's uh it's a well-built album from that perspective no but uh, I think you said it all and um let, let's do the formalities what do you rank it as number one I <laughs> All right, I have it as number three, so it's definitely one of my favorites, too. It's good. Yeah, it is good. It's damn good shit. Shit! I think my favorite lyric is, sound alarms, the school bell rings, because I think that really is such a brilliant way to, to let you know that this guy is, this is a kid, and that in, that juxtaposition there of that voice sound alarms and then him saying the school bell rings I think is brilliant and really sets the tone of the song it's very hard to pick just one here I think what I like as uh, instead of a specific lyric I definitely like the duology of the uh, propaganda machine versus the individual that is one thing that I think is incredibly clever so uh, if I can like one thing about the lyrics I would li- like that setup in general but also align that kind of gives me a little chill is uh, the the run to ground or heathen foe <laughs> it's just uh, yeah. that always struck me somehow that uh, and also the name will never die the time will be forever and that especially the last time it said that the last when, when you know the guy is is dying and then it becomes more like an afterthought so not men who stand like gods we give life to feed the cause suddenly that line also takes on a deeper meaning because yeah. you know the life was actually given but did it feed the cause or was it just propaganda and right. run to ground the heathen foe so I think that also is um, if I can mention two or one concrete and just just the way he structured the, the intro there Come back to me. All right, so we have a song at last that isn't a barnstormer. It's not a ferocious uh, sort of whirlwind of uh, power. It is quite the contrary. And it is part two of this little duology, the story within the album. And uh, to start on a lighter note, during the roundtable discussion, Arlen did his best to sow a seed on what this song was about, or rather what who the people in the song is. So just for his benefit, let's establish once again that the song, the, the person in the song is the girlfriend or the wife of the man who went to war in Red Rose's zone, who during his absence found out that she was carrying this man's child. 
Arlen's always sowing seeds of discontent. Yes, so uh, I want to get that out of the way. Seed sower. <laughs> well, there, someone sowed a seed because this song, uh, <laughs> someone is pregnant. So, um, so that's the sex on this album, I guess. But I knew uh, it wouldn't escape you. Yeah, but I'm not going to make a big point on this song because the song uh, definitely uh, it it doesn't strike me as lighthearted. This is uh, an extremely sad song. Uh, especially with uh, the woman in this situation where she knows the man is dead, she knows the man is killed in action, he's not coming home, and she is grieving. So this is the point we're at uh, when the song unfolds, and when the story of the song unfolds. So these are the feelings she is going through here. And uh, I have a quote from Stuart, uh, from yet again the same Melody Maker interview in 1984 where he said quite briefly about uh, the duology of songs where the Rosie Stone and come back to me he said the mother and the son and the wife and the husband I wanted to see every point so that that is kind of obvious he, um, we, we get the um, it's, it's kind of two sad songs even though the first is filled with propaganda you see the anxiousness at first and uh, the, the guy goes from being anxious to terrified. He's, he's scared for his life at the end of the song. And that's a point we shouldn't forget in that song. As, as, as glorious as the song is, and as, yeah, a great guitar solo, and when they play it live, everybody jumps. He's singing about someone who is in fear of his life and terrified of dying. Isn't that kind of a, a, a contrast there? I, I wouldn't know what the contrast was if yeah. that isn't one. So, yeah, so, sure so that's that song. And then we have this song, which is powerful grief at least this isn't a yeah song <laughs> this song it's kind of up there everybody sees what this is about and the song is heartbreaking it's very very sad and it is beautiful it has a beautiful melody and this is a lethal combination you have this heartbreaking situation heartbreaking words and a hauntingly beautiful melody arranged very well with incredible instrumentation that's that's come back to me uh and uh he said on stage when they played this song they played it in the peace in our time tour and he says this song is all about a woman who has lost someone near and dear to her which almost is uh i'm not gonna say belittling that is wrong but it's uh, it's it's about more than that it, it uh you have the tragedy or you have the person being terrified in Red Rose's zone, which is setting up this song. It is a duology. It is one and then the other. Uh, I prefer getting them together. And uh, it's a very big contrast, because the the story of the song, it's set against the cheering crowds outside. The heroes return victorious from the war. But the one that this woman is waiting for is not coming back, and she sits inside and uh, her heart is breaking and outside you hear the cheers and that is just such a a contrast it's 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 just incredible and uh, what makes this song even more heartbreaking if you can get there is the sense of loss that works on three levels you have the woman who lost her life partner the child who lost its father and then you have the man who died who never even knew he was going to be a father so that um, is, it's it's just uh, on all levels, just so incredibly sad. And you need, you need to put up shields. You can't invest that heavily into the song every time you hear it. 
because you will end up a shivering wreck. You will never want to touch the song or even the album it's on ever again. <laughs> so, uh, so you can't sit there and and sob your way through it every time it comes on. You just can't. Well, it, it's interesting that you say that because um, I think even Stewart felt that way because at times when he played this song live, he would he would make a joke and say like. Uh, now you are going to witness something amazing, a sex change. I'm going to turn into a woman before your very eyes. He would say something like that. He yeah. Kind of make, make light of the song. and uh, He did make light of it. He said, actually, the words are... For this song, something absolutely amazing has to happen before your very eyes. Not that. I actually have to have a sex change operation live on stage. But... Hang on. Right, that's it. Because <laughs> the song is all about a woman who's lost someone near and dear to her. It's called Come Back to Me. <laughs> so, so he's kind of setting the song up, but it's also kind of jokey. And uh, in my mind, it kind of cheapens the song a bit, but it's also a, a disarming technique because you can't... <laughs> this is about a song about right. a woman. You can't go that route. It's impossible. You need right. you need to perhaps take the light thing, but still in my in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, please don't say that. <laughs> I, I agree. I yeah. agree. I, I thought that way too at the time when yeah. I saw that. So, so I know exactly why he says it, and it's fine, but I, I can't help but think that it, that it also cheapens it. But... Uh, Big country gigs, it, they, they should be happy occasions. Uh, uh, but this is a beef of mine, and I'm, I, I say it all the time, but songs with deeply sad subject matter that I wrote about, it shouldn't be met with beer-stained cheers and one, two, three, four sing-alongs. It's just wrong. And people people are cheering and chanting along to songs about deep despair, and that's just something that breaks it's for me. It's very strange, isn't it? It is very strange, but they're in... Is the the paradigm of of big country, I guess. So uh, yeah, where was I? Yeah, the um, the song. This is the, you, the, the. I know there are ebos on uh, on other songs before, primarily with the Roses song, but this is really the first song thus far where the ebo is upfront and very clearly part of the sound. And uh, ebo, as we all know, is a, is the national instrument in the kingdom of big country. So it's always great when they pull it out, and it's lovely. I always loved it when the ebo is used to create a haunting feel instead of a sugary sweet feel and here it's definitely haunting it's it's um the music underpins the lyrics which you talked about for for other songs that when when they, when they mesh and they go together then uh, then you have something that just clicks and works all that much uh, better so i'm not gonna quote the words we, we i talked about what they are about and it's uh, it's really sad stuff but and but it's beautiful because the melody is strong, it's very beautiful, and the words are sad. So, it, again, that's that lethal combination. But I will mention the strong playout, because you have the last words of the song when he uh, he basically says, "I never knew how weak I was," and basically you leave the woman, and it's almost like if this was a movie, 
the, the camera would pan out and you get the play out, strong play out after the vocals are done. And it's not like a barnstormer, but it's very intense. I never was sure how I felt about that play out, to be honest, how it fit in the song. Like on one hand, I love it. On the other hand, it, it almost doesn't fit with the song at times for me because it, it's almost got more of a upbeat, rousing type of feel to it. But yet, I don't know. I, I go back and forth on it. I think it's fine because uh, the woman has told her story and you pan out. And it's. I find it to be very intense. It uh, It is not... Yeah, I can hear what you're saying about it make, being a lighter moment in the song and almost maybe leaving the listener not totally heartbroken over the situation that the song portrays. But I just think it as a play out, it's, it's gorgeous. And uh, yeah, from a disarming point of view, maybe they put it there on purpose. But it, it does pan out and you have this thing about time heals all wounds. At the time of the, the song, of, of the woman in the song, this is the most vulnerable. You have, maybe she just got the message, everybody's coming home. You feel the hurt strongest when everybody else is coming home or just about everyone else except the person you're waiting for. So this is the weakest and darkest hour. And uh, they say time heals all wounds. Maybe the song points to that, but it still has that intensity. You know, I saw it always as when when the woman says, "I never knew how weak I was." I imagine she starts crying, and then you have this intense play out, and that's just a different place. Otherwise, mm. otherwise, you just have to leave it on a almost lingering note or haunting with an ebo. I, I, I don't know what would be a good ending. For for me, it works. For I can I can almost hear like it ending in in the way that Stewart would end it live. I think it's interesting that they never played that outro and on the song and I wonder about that you know I wonder if Stuart ever thought that I wonder why he never played the outro on that song but but interestingly enough live now they are playing it which I think is great because it's nice to hear mm. it um, and by the way I, I just I think big props to Simon I think his voice sounds really really fantastic especially on their version of come back to me I, I think it sounds great mm. but it, it's very cool to hear the the outro now but it's interesting that they never played it before and it, it almost like they they would end it on that minor note I never knew how weak I was. And when I think about it, it almost would sound pretty cool, though, too. Even though I do like that outro, it almost sound cool to end it on that and then immediately into the tall ships go. I think that almost serves the same purpose as the outro in a sense. But uh, No, that would be too harsh a cut. You would go uh, too quickly from the grief into uh, a barnstormer again. That would be worse. I, I kind of like the idea of it. No, no, no. Kenny, no. we've got some disagreement. <laughs> Kenny, take note. Yeah. One. It just hit, it just <laughs> hit me. One. It just hit me. So you know. No, no, I definitely know to that one. But obviously, it's not strange they didn't play that ending before because they gave it more of an acoustic treatment before. Whereas now they do have a band version, and it makes sense yeah, they, to play that. They play. They played a full band version on the Peace in Our Time tour. It's on. It's on some of those. Uh, some of those concert recordings from that period. No, in it's fact, acoustic. Think, if you listen to the BBC live recording, it's uh, it's acoustic for the most part. Well, I know they. Did, I know they did a full band version. Maybe maybe it was the actual Steel Town tour then, because I know there's a version of it live. 
and I don't think they did the outro. I'd have to I'd have to go back and check. In fact, let's let's take a break and check now, shall we? I am right. They I'm, ended it on the minor chord, full band version. Have it, you. On the Steel Town tour? Yep. Yeah, I just said it didn't do it on the Peace in Our Time tour. Oh, well, I, I, yeah, that, you, you may you? be right about that. You may be right about that. But <laughs> yeah, that one I know was an acoustic uh, version. The, the Steel Town tour, I don't know. The, yeah, they played it with the full band version, and they ended it on I Never Knew How Wake I Was. Stuart hits that big E chord, and it's over. I think it's interesting. I just I wonder why they didn't play that outro. But uh, yeah, maybe maybe he thought that it. I don't know. Maybe he felt like it didn't fit either. Maybe they just didn't want to play it. Strange. But anyway, whatever I feel about it, I'm glad they they played it now. I I do think it's a gorgeous piece of music, and um, great again, great bass playing from Tony and on that part especially. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I want to say something about the the use of female voice. Um, I always found it a bit interesting that Stuart sang it himself, and I wonder if they even considered having a woman try to sing it. And I think they didn't because this has never come up. But that could have been an interesting ex- experiment, especially in terms of uh, maybe they could have gotten someone and made a hit out of it. And one thing that is apparent to me is they were in Sweden, they were in Polar Studio. How about getting one of the Abba girls? <laughs> Where are you going with this? Getting Abba to sing it? Yeah, getting hey, why one. Why not? Why not? He just he just written a song for Frida. Maybe yeah, she would have done it. You're stealing all my points here. <laughs> Interrupting me and saying exactly what I'm saying. So again, we are of one mind. No, but th- that that is what I'm saying. That How about the Alba Girls? Because they were at the studio. And uh, it is a gorgeous and melodic song. And imagine just the slightest reworking, if needed, to suit the Alba Girl voices to shape it into a single. Especially if they got both of them, because those vo- voices just mesh but then you wouldn't have the one so i guess i don't know if that would have given the album also the hit that uh, it craved i think personally it was staring them in the face but i definitely wouldn't want to give up the version with stuart but they could have done what some people did which is make a version for the single market only and kept the album version which is similar to what other people did at the time and i'm thinking especially of david bowie who had a hit with cat people uh, for that movie and the single of that song which everybody knows is vastly different to the album version so it is possible I don't and know now it's it's a radical thought and if this is the first time you heard it you no, would I mean, be, I don't you know would... about cat people alright well it is <laughs> I've never heard that I don't I can't think of that song in my head it was a big hit <laughs> <laughs> I I'm believe sa- you I'm saying it to you but uh, no let's not bring the podcast down but I think the only reason they didn't consider it as a single were the the words are so heartbreakingly sad but i also think a lot of people could have latched onto that it does have a a very good sing-along chorus to it there's no doubt about it there is a melody and uh it is a song that deserved a particular visibility i think but uh i don't know it's uh if they were going for the single which i'm i'm kind of glad they didn't i'm glad they made the album and everybody wants it but uh, this is a song with a woman's voice. And, uh, I mean, who knows? Next album, they got Kate Bush. Yeah, I, I just I don't think it would have worked for this, personally. It's an interesting thought, definitely. But I, I think it's too t- the song is too tied to the previous song, number one. Not that that had to be the only reason not to release it as a single. But 
I, I think um, it would have been a little too obvious to have the, the female voice singing it. I, I, I really love the fact that Stuart sang it. And it was it was kind of a groundbreaking thing in a way. I'm sure it's been done before, probably where a man is sung in a, a woman's perspective. But I had, it was the first time I really became aware of it. Um, and I didn't I didn't know it at the time when I first listened to the album. I, I uh, when I saw when I heard lines like "Had your child inside me," I thought, well, maybe that's some abstract. It's the mother. Comments. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I didn't fully grasp at first that it was from the woman's perspective. It was a, it was only a little later i can't remember if i read it or, or whatever but um I, I like it the way it is i i wouldn't have changed it i i, I think only Stewart could have sang it with that kind of emotion yeah, and, and and i i do agree with you and i would not miss the Stewart version for the world but i i would have liked to have seen a single version and no one can tell me that come back to me with abba girls on it wouldn't have been a bigger hit than any of the ones on the album Stewart would have had to have been almost a a backup singer if they'd have gone that route though in the song it would have had to have been whoever sang it whatever female sang it would have had to have to have been the main voice obviously yeah which would have made it different than the kate bush thing where she was more of a was more of a duet thing but uh yeah it's interesting i i do think it's um it's an incredibly catchy song as far as that chorus goes you can just you just get the feeling of people putting their arms around each other, swaying back and forth live, singing that song or at a New Year's Eve type of feel to it almost. Hmm. Uh, um, yeah, it, it's, it's... No, go ahead. No, I was just saying that it taps into something that bands like the Smiths understood. Because if you sing a song about being miserable, what happens is all the miserable people in the world will say, they understand me and they'll buy that song. And they latch onto that band and that the albums they give out. If you put out a song about missing someone, the people who miss someone will say they know how I feel and latch onto it. Yeah, that's uh, also part of the thinking of this song as a single. That uh, there are many reasons why it wouldn't have worked, but there are some conditions where it would be worth considering. I think. Well, I think even when you just take away the rest of the song and just leave it with the chorus, the chorus can be something that yes. that's very applicable to all kinds of situations. Yeah, everyone can relate to that feeling. Come back to me. Days are all too long. Everyone's lost someone in some way that they would think about with that. But uh, getting back to the song itself, I, I, uh, it, yeah, it's 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 a gorgeous song. It's um, it's it's also one of the first big country songs where there really is a prominent acoustic guitar presence in it, which I think is fairly notable. I can't I can't think offhand. The storm. Okay, yeah, this definitely on the storm. Yep, that's true. It's it's I guess it's similar to that, and as far as the use of acoustic, um, but it's still you don't get acoustic guitars very often in big country songs. But uh, it's it's a beautiful acoustic played and. I, I go back and say this over and over again for this album, but really should listen to it in headphones because when you hear the the acoustic guitar treatment on this song in headphones, you can hear the two there are two acoustic guitars panned hard left and hard right, and um, really just beautiful. And it, you really get the full feeling of that when Stewart would play that live, and it was just him and the acoustic, and you get the feeling for that part, um, beautiful part. And there's also this. It, the song starts on this droning note that really goes through the entire song, and I, I find yeah. that really haunting and and effective. Uh, it's just that I don't know exactly what it's played on. It might be a mandolin, but it um, it just starts on that note. Uh, maybe it's an e-boat. I, I don't know, but it 
it literally goes throughout the entire song, just this one note, and it kind of hypnotizes you almost. Um, yeah, I mean, you've said basically everything with about the song. It's it, it's the perfect way to wrap up the whole bleakness of the end of where the rose is sown. And in fact, he even calls that song uh, almost by name when he when he gets to the one really powerful and one of the many really powerful lines. It's um, one day I will lie down where the rose was flung, yeah. which I always thought was a great, great line. It, it, it's it's almost like mentioning that it, you can almost think that the, the boy who was killed has been flown home and he's buried somewhere. And when she dies, maybe in her old age, she will be buried next to him. But the, the fact that she says the rose was flung is is a very interesting way to suggest that this this man's life was almost thrown away yeah you get that feeling and um again we just continue with those themes of uh, the reality of war versus the quote-unquote glory of war and in this song it's it's just nothing but reality right in your face um her watching the the hero step down from the car while tears fell on my cigarette he handed out cigars amazing amazing lines um you mentioned the Ebo. I, I agree. I think that Ebo solo in the middle of the song is just so gorgeous and beautiful. And it's almost got a waltz type of feel to it. You, you can almost picture the woman you know, dancing with the ghost of her husband or something. I always get that that image in my mind, her just like thinking and, and moving to that. It's just such a a great um, a great feel to that portion of the song, especially when that Ebo comes in. It's just heartbreaking. I think the one thing about this song uh, that I always did think about it, about with it though, is that it almost seemed like at times it was almost a little too cluttered for me for for what it was trying to do. There were times on the um, acoustic version that he would do, I, I would almost yeah, felt like it was almost more emotional in some ways, and the the version that's on the deluxe edition is really one of the standout moments of that deluxe edition for me. I'm not going to say it's better, but it's it's very interesting to hear a really stripped down yeah. vocal performance from Stewart without all the reverb, without all the uh, the backup vocals too. Which I, there there are backup vocals throughout this song from the moment he starts singing, really through the end of the song, and I almost feel like they're not needed. Some sometimes I love, most of the time I love the backup vocals that Stewart does. And by the way, I, Tony does a lot of them, but Stewart does a lot of the backing vocals too on these albums. It's pretty clear, but I think in this song especially, it's it's Stewart singing backups. But I think that there was no need for the backups as much as they were used on this song. It's like from the very first line, you've got two voices singing in harmony, and I don't. I think it's more powerful the way the deluxe edition actually did it, where it's just Stewart. Mm. I knew this house had lost the cause To ever make me warm again Come back to me And without that heavy reverb on his voice, it's just a, it's got a more stark feel. It feels and more fact, naked and it's more powerful, definitely. 
Yeah, and they even bring up like Mark's floor tom in that song, which I never even knew that floor tom type of pattern existed until I heard that deluxe edition. And then I went back and listened. I was like, yeah, it is there. It's just very low in the mix. But it's it's almost got a U2-ish feel because they're known for those those droning songs with the with the Larry Mullen Jr. floor tom beats. And it, it's got almost that feel to it, that, that stripped-down version. But um, that, that's the only criticism I would have of the song – on this album it's on the album version it's i think it's almost like there's almost like too much this is one of the only songs on the album where i would say there maybe there is a little too much happening in the song musically as far as the production goes Uh, maybe maybe they could have stripped it down a little bit more um that said it's it's still a spine tingling song and um there's just so many incredible moments another interesting line that i think is when Stewart, another biblical reference, uh, and we know he was a religious guy. I don't know exactly what his feelings were, but it's interesting that he references um, Pontius Pilate, the story of Pontius Pilate in this song where he says, I will wash the bloody hands and cast the bowl away. And that that's something that, um, that Pilate did, if you're at all familiar with that story, when he was judging uh, Jesus, and he did not want to convict Jesus and he asked the people, who should I free, this, this uh, convicted criminal uh, or Jesus? Or, and they all wanted the criminal released. And so he, he, he said, uh, the verse, actual verse is, he says, um, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. Um, he, he asked for a bowl, and then he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See, see that, see to that yourselves. And all the people said, "His blood shall be on us and our children." It's interesting that he like asked for a bowl and washes his hands, and he says he washes the the blood, the metaphorical blood, off of his hands in that act. And I always thought that was an interesting, interesting choice in that song. It's almost like the woman is saying that the blood of her husband is certainly not on on her hands. I don't know, or I don't, I don't know exactly what it means, but it's just an interesting uh, allusion to to these other pieces of literature that you often see in Stewart's writing. So Mm. yeah, an incredibly powerful song an incredibly powerful way to end the side one of the album. And uh, yeah, I do think it was structurally a a good needed point for a little, a little break, but you certainly don't get a break mentally. (laughs) You know, it's just like, no, it slows, it it, it slows down a little, but yeah. If anything, this is the, the heaviest song mentally on the album definitely <laughs> i don't side consider this a it break up a little, yeah i mean side two is is still dark and heavy but it's it's a little bit lighter but uh yeah, yeah. this is probably the the darkest moment maybe of the album i don't know do we even have a lyrical favorite um yes we do let me get to mine we do are we are we royal today yes we are <laughs> always royal well we um, like gosh there's so many that i can pick from from this uh i think the most obvious choice would be i was so young and full of pride and you were wild and strong i never knew how weak i was and that would be a great choice but for me uh, i'm Mm going to go with something that's that's a little less maybe mentioned and it's it's one of the most powerful lines to me and i i think that's i knew this house had lost the cause to ever make me warm again Mm -hmm. and and you need the first part of that too i sat in the kitchen without a fire on the range i knew this house had lost the cause to ever make me warm again what a what a beautiful way to to express this woman's pain and uh 
So I'm going to pick that one. I think that's just an incredible line. Yeah, it is. Uh, I will pick something later in the song that, without fail, it never fails to choke me up. So I have, I have actually composed myself, and now I'm going to read them. And that's toward the end, which is a little bit more reflective, I guess. When the, and I'm actually disregarding the, the bloody hands and the bowl here, because I don't think they fit. But the other lines are, I will always be here fading by the day. And then, as the years hang on me, you will always be young. And one day I will lie down where the rose was flung. So that just... Uh, the, the grief is always in the here and now. But those lines kind of hit home that this is... For the rest of the life, I'm going to be without you. And uh, and I will eventually grow old, But and I will do it without you. And, uh, and one day I'll die too. And it's just... A larger perspective than the instant grief, and it always uh, just gets to me. And it, especially the way he sings it, which is, especially when he goes into the "I will always be here" fading by the day, he's a little bit more tender in his mm-hmm. delivery. And I know live when, especially he played acoustic, those lines would be delivered very weakly, and then he would storm into the "I will wash my bloody hands." So that was one thing he could do when he played acoustic. He would embellish and light and shade more uh, and lift up some lines and lower some for effect so yeah. that so that uh, that worked very well in that passage of the song yeah good that's a good one and yeah, i think years hang on me is a great way too just to describe the the aging process it's just a great example of, of how a great writer works he doesn't just say as the years go by or, or he says as the years hang on me and just just the choice yes. of hang just the choice of hang on me gives you a feeling of how this woman's life is going to progress in a way you know she's going to she's going to always be sad and and uh, obviously and and there there's going to be a certain sense of depression and obviously a huge sense of loss that she's already saying is going to be with her for, for the rest of her life so so much that you can glean from just a couple words and with yeah. with with great writers and Stewart is one of the greatest as far as I'm concerned me too. <laughs> Fancy that. Yeah. How and do you rank would... this uh, glorious song? Uh, well, this to me, I, I rank number eight. And that's probably because as much as I love it, it is one of the songs that I am more inclined to skip. Uh, I think, again, my one criticism of it would be that I do think maybe it's a little too cluttered musically. It's one of the few songs that I think that that criticism of the album as a whole might might hold true. Um, I, I wouldn't mind seeing it scaled back a little bit and hearing it on the deluxe edition sort of reinforce that for me. So, number eight. <sighs> number four. <laughs> and that means that we're done with side one, and I already spent my number one, two, three, four. Good lord. Yeah, on the flip side, I also spent my number ten. Wow, interesting. So, we'll see. I think uh, side one is actually the stronger side um, to me as it would be with my number one through four on it. But uh, I love side two too. All right, so this brings us to Tall Ships Go, and I think the best way to start this is with a late speak pipe that we received, uh, but we were more than happy to use it because it also fit. It was very song-specific, so it fits perfectly with uh, as an intro to this song, and that is from John Wilbur. So this is John Wilbur's speak pipe, dealing very much with Tall Ships Go. Good evening, Tom. It's fine. John Wilbur in uh, southeastern Connecticut. 
I can toss my two cents worth into the pot. I've been a big countryman since 1983, when my younger brother brought home the crossing. Thank you, Jim. And so I was already a fan in a waiting steel town in 1984. The song that struck me the most on Steel Town is The Magnificent Tall Ships Go. I developed an instant sympathy with Tall Ships Go for many reasons. First off, there is the title. As a fan of sailing ships, I was interested just from the title alone. In common with Stuart, my father was absent from my childhood for great swathes of time due to his job as captain of freighters in world service. Although he was gone for about half of every year, he was still a very powerful force in my life. And once he died in 1993, that was when the song became even more anthemic for me. I would see him and speak to him in my dreams fairly often after he died. The interesting thing is that he never appeared as a flashback. It was always a current situation, and there was always the question of where had he been all that time, and was he really still alive? It wasn't the case, though. I always awoke from those dreams confused and unable to get back to sleep, and his voice definitely kept me from sleeping, and it was always in my dreams when his voice called to me. So now I cannot hear this song without specifically thinking of my father, and that alone is enough to make it unique and my favorite song of all. Incidentally, I consider Tall Ships Go to be part two in a trilogy of songs of similar material. The first, I think, was Close Action, which was... Uh, in the 1983-84 New Year's Eve show, Stewart described as being about families being split up to make a living. I think what he was possibly referring to was his father's long absence from family while at sea. Both of those songs express a certain resentment about the situation, and the raucous music, I think, highlights the turmoil in heart and brain. The pain that grows in hardship was something that much later had matured into an understanding beautifully expressed in part three of the trilogy of learning to row. But by now, time had worn down the anger and acceptance and understanding had mellowed him, but the sense of loss was still potent. In the interest of full disclosure, I did understand the call, and maybe even was born to it, as I too went to sea for 14 years after graduating from college, but now work upon the shallower waters of Long Island Sound, much closer to home and family. I don't know whether any of this is of any interest or worth two cents to anyone else, but uh, there you have it. Thank you, and keep up the good work. Bye. All right, so thank you, John, for that. That that uh, I was telling Swine before we started that I was already emotional thinking about this song, and that just made it even more so for me because, yeah, it really drives home uh, the whole point or the whole, I guess, crux of the song, the source of the song's power, and that is Stuart's feelings for his father. And there are all kinds of different feelings expressed in this song and a lot of melancholy in this song. And But before I start talking about the lyrics, I think it's... You know, I think it's really interesting that as we get to side two of this album, and if we all, those of us who are most of us, probably 90% of us listening to this are quite old enough to remember sides one and sides two of albums and, and those types of things. A few of you might not quite remember that. But it, it was interesting that bands really thought about what was going to be on one side versus what was going to be on a second side, whereas now everything sort of meshes together. 
bands really paid attention, I think, to creating maybe a different mood when someone actually took the time to flip a record over. Uh, so I think that was still... It, it was kind of starting to go out at this point because CDs were starting to come into place where you just had the whole album from start to finish. But I think it was still very much there. And I think it's very interesting how when this album begins on side two, we get uh, we get a different type of... It's not night and day difference. It's still very much the Steel Town sound. But there are some differences, I think, that really pop into side two that are, that are worth noting. And specifically with here with Tall Ships Go, I think we have one of the songs on the album that really you can't really say this is a cluttered song musically as you could with some of these other ones um it's got much more of an airy feel to it i think there's a lot going on in this as there are in all of these songs but musically there there's a lot more space in this than i think is in some of the other tunes i don't would you agree with that it's fine never thought of it that way yeah, well, I didn't mean to put you on the spot there, but <laughs> no, but that's fine. I, it never occurred to me. It, I mean, it's um, it's very clearly a start of uh, a new album side song, if you will. Yeah, it is. It is a very much. It starts over because uh, it. Uh, one thing you can say about side one is it starts very energetic, but mood wise, it 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 kind of drops. It, it becomes grim. So you have Flame of the West, then you dip a bit with the East of Eden, and then you have the grim scenario of uh, Steel Town. Then you're sending someone to war and die, and then there's <laughs> grief and uh, and misery. Right. So you're kind of you turn the album, and even though it starts with "I dreamed I heard that you were dead," <laughs> it, it it starts on a kind of new high. It does. Musically. It does, yeah. and I think it, it does definitely musically. It's got more of the sense of more of that anthemic sense to it but as you say the uh, the I dreamed I saw that you were dead certainly puts it more back into perspective right away but I think one thing of note too about this side is that this side is much more personal in scope which I don't think was a an accident I mean mm. side one is very broad we're talking about world issues for the most part I mean I know we've got the the boy who goes to war and the wife who has lost him in the last two songs but still they're not really about Stuart personally. They're him telling the, the story of someone. And Flame of the West is about a world leader or world events. East of Eden is kind of, maybe there's some personal things in that, but it's also setting up a broader type of, of feel. And Steel Town is about a situation that he's seen other people go through. Mm. And once we get into side two, it's really interesting how so many of the songs, with with maybe the exception of The Great Divide, which probably could have fit squarely on side one, but the the bulk of the songs on side two really are much more personal with, with Stuart talking more about I and me and not just as a character, but as something you get the sense that he's really drawing from things from mm. his from his life. And I think we really get that right away, obviously, with Tall Ships Go. So I'll start dealing yeah. with this specifically. Um, we all know, most of us who have listened to this for a long time, that this song is about Stuart's father. And... Just a, a brief recap of what his father did. I'm still not exactly 100% sure of what exactly his father did, but reading from the book A Certain Chemistry, there's a line that Stuart uh, is talking about growing up, and he says his father was an engineer on deep-sea trawlers. Now, I think I'm curious what engineer means in this context because engineer could mean all kinds of different things. So maybe you can shed some light on that. I don't know exactly what that means. Cle clearly, it was, it's not like the scientific sense of an engineer, I don't believe. I mean, he was maybe helping to to drive the ship. I don't know. But he worked on a deep-sea deep trawler, basically. 
And Stuart said, I lived in a one-bedroom miner's house in a row as a child. About his father, he continues and says, he was away from home a lot. The earliest recollections I'd ha- I have of him is coming back from sea. And he used to bring penance from all the places he'd been, and I had a whole wall of them in my room. Once he came home with a shark in a polythene bag, he flung this thing in the bath, and it was stinking. So funny little story there, but we just get the feeling from the things that Stuart says here and, and things he said in past interviews that his father really wasn't a presence, a physical presence, very often in his childhood. But definitely, as we talk about in this song, he was definitely a presence in other ways, sort of similar to to what John Wilbur was describing in his speak pipe. Um, and Stewart continues, he says, it was mainly my mom and her mother that I, that I had most contact with at the time because my dad was away working so much. There really wasn't the scope to earn a decent amount of money locally, so I think that's why he went to sea. There was a living wage there, but nothing startling. He served his time in the pits of Glencraig, <laughs> which is such an ominous sentence. He served his time in the pits of Glencraig. So, <laughs> that pets. Yeah. So obviously this is a, definitely a working class family struggling to get by. They live in a, a one-bedroom house when he was growing up. And his father went away to work to earn a wage for them. And it's th- this song – Always, I always knew this was about Stewart's father, but I have to admit that when I was a teenager listening to this, when I was even a young adult, what meant the most to me about this song were certain lines that I kind of appropriated from the way Stewart meant them and applied them to my own life and, and also the music, which I think is just so gigantic and magnificent. Um, and I didn't think about as deeply about the parent-father-son relationship as I've come to over the past six years or so when as I became a father and I tell you as a father now of two young boys uh the song means so much more to me than it than it did before and I and I can really understand a lot of the feelings that Stuart was putting into these lyrics um I I have a situation where I work uh two jobs during the the football season the american football season uh i work a regular job during the day and then two nights a week i go somewhere else and work so i i finish my my regular job on these two nights and then i don't even come home half the time i go straight to this other place so my two boys don't see me much those days and they they really as they've gotten a little bit older like when they were younger they didn't realize this so much but as they've gotten three four five the oldest is six now they really get upset about this, and it, it it's heart-wrenching for me at times to leave. I mean, they'll sit and cry the, the night before I leave, and uh, they, they've gotten better about it. But, like, the day that I have to do this, they'll wake up, and the oldest will be sad, and he'll say, you've got to go to this job tonight. And it'll it'll depress him. It'll make him sad, and it makes me sad. It's It's one of those things where we do it so we can have extra finances and et cetera, et cetera. So I can only this is only for two nights a week. So I can only imagine what a young child must feel like when their father is gone for months at a time. And and as well as what the father must feel like to be gone from his sons and his family for months at a time. It's 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 something that I always think about when I see these stories that they play here in America a lot. They love to have um these little stories of a soldier who's returning home to surprise his son or his daughter or his young child after being away for sometimes up to a year and they'll he'll come to their school and surprise them and it's just hugely emotional thing and i'm just like i don't know how anyone could ever do that i just don't 
I could not do it. There's no way I could stand to be away from my kids for that period of time. But some people, that's their job. They've got to do it. So this song, from Stuart's perspective, is really about how he dealt with that, not only as a kid, but as an adolescent and then as a young adult. And I think one thing that really hit me about this song lyrically is that it's almost structured... And it's funny that John Wilmer mentioned the, a trilogy of songs that he was thinking about, because to me, this song is almost like a dream trilogy. We've got a dream. We've got three dreams in this song that are discussed. One dream seems to be the young child, Stuart. And I'll talk about that one first, since it's the first dream. And we, we know those lyrics. I dreamed I heard that you were dead. I dreamed I searched an empty bed for a sign of you. And the sea called hard to me like a cell without a key, and I felt the distance. Stuart is remembering. This is this is just my interpretation, obviously. Maybe if he was around, or if someone is more deeply involved in this, they could they could have a different interpretation. This is how I view these uh, lyrics. This is the young Stuart, the child Stuart, who just doesn't see his father much and who misses his father. I mean, I mean. Fathers are a huge presence, obviously, in, in any child's life, and especially between father and son. So when you grow up as a young boy or as a young as a young child, and your father isn't there, he he, I would imagine he tends to take on a mythological type of of presence in your life, and I think we get that early on. So, and and your child would worry about what's my father doing? Is he going to die? Am I ever going to see him again? And you get in those first few lines of the song you really get that sense, that fear that young Stuart had uh, with his father being gone all that time, wondering if he was dead, dreaming that he was dead, looking in a bed that, that was empty, which must have been a common occurrence for him You know, after his father would leave or after he was gone for a long time. I'm sure there were moments where he looked at that empty bed in reality and, and missed him and, and looked at those penance that he had hanging in his room and missed him and thought about him. And It must have been a huge force in his mind whether consciously or subconsciously um so he's he's having that sense of loss and that sense sense of fear that a young child would have wanting their father to be around and then we get when he says i watched the tall ships go we get a sense right there for even though he's not specifically saying it as we would read in later interviews he's he's setting in perspective what his father did he was working on tall ships and there's a line in there that always resonated with me as being a great overriding line that can really describe much of big country's work. And that is with a pride that grows in hardship. I think that's one of the best lines, um, not necessarily the best as far as being the most poetic, et cetera, but one of the best as far as if you want to take a line that describes big country's music and, and their outlook on their music, I think that's a big overriding theme in Stewart's lyrics, a pride that grows in hardship and he's kind of watching the tall ships go. And as I read in the lines that I read uh, about Stuart, Stuart's own lines, talking about his childhood, they did live in maybe hardship might be overstating it. I don't know, but they certainly weren't a wealthy family. They lived in a one-bedroom apartment. They Stuart recognized even then that his father had to do this so that they could live. And so, but there's a certain pride that grows in that. He sees the tall ships. He's thinking as a child— my father works on those. My father rides those tall ships. And there's a sense of pride that, that he feels about it. And, you know, when you're a kid, when you're a young boy, even with my own boys, they, 
they uh, they think you're the greatest. Uh, you know, they, they, when they're of a certain age, they think you can do no wrong, that you are a Superman. And I kind of get that feeling from those lines. Like he's got this pride that his father is on these ships and he might be he might be watching them from some other place and thinking, wow, my father's great. He actually is on these things. So that that's kind of the the first dream that we've got in the in this in this song. And it's this point where the young steward is mythologizing his father and he's missing him deeply, as you can already hear. And then we've got the chorus. I hear your voice. It keeps him keeps me from sleeping. And. Arlen mentioned on the roundtable that some of those lines might seem seem a little bit off at first. Like, how can he be sleeping? How can he be hearing these this voice in his dreams if he's not able to go to sleep? And I I think uh, John explained that well too. And this is the way I take it: is that he hears the voice in his dreams and it wakes him up. And uh, I think those of us who've had kids often can tell you of a child waking up in the middle of the night, having a bad dream and, and not being able to go back to sleep. And in, in Stuart's case, he's having dreams about his father who's gone. So there's the first dream. Uh, then we go into the second dream. He says, I dreamed you felt the typhoon spit and walked into the heart of it while the seagulls cry. I know how to feel that call. It never suited me at all, but some are born to it. And you seem so bright and hard, like a bloody edge of sword. But if you're an enemy, then you look a lot like me. Um, just, Great, poetic, beautiful lines as we've got throughout this album. I, I feel like this dream is more of the adolescent Stuart. Um, it's not necessarily the the complete mythologizing of his father here, although we get a little bit of that. Uh, but we get the sense of Stuart really looking up to his father at this point, um, even, but but also in a different way. Like it, there's there's something that's creeping in in this dream. And that is the the use of the word enemy. Um, I think when kids reach a certain stage, obviously, well, not I think, I mean, it's just a fact of life. When kids reach a certain stage, they start to lose a little bit of that uh, feeling of the parent can do no wrong. And they start to realize that, hey, in some ways they're at odds with this parent. And in some ways the parent could be looked at as an enemy in a sense where they want to do their own thing. The parent is trying to tell them this. and And we get that first sense that, the father is this huge, great force, like he's been in the in the first dream. He's like a bloody edge of sword, which is an incredible way to describe somebody. I mean, I've never, ever heard that phrase used before, and it's just so powerful, and it tells you so much that you can glean from that as far as the father's personality and his presence in Stuart's life. But when he says, but if you're an enemy, then you look a lot like me, It's there's that first creeping in of the whole enemy thing, the whole loggerheads that they may have come to at times, but... But he's also recognizing that he looks a lot like me in that he can see himself in his father. He can it's some of these lines get a little bit harder to to decipher. And as I've said before, it's not like we have to make perfect sense out of every single line here. But I think we're just trying to take a, a general as close as you can get type of feel for what the song is about. So from from that second dream sequence of the song, I, I kind of look at it as. He's he's in the adolescence phase where he still views his father as a gigantic force, but he's also starting to think, feel that that sense of being at odds with someone. But he's also at the same time seeing himself in his father. Maybe he's thinking, "Am I going to be like this? Am I going to grow up to be like him? And what parts of me are going to am I going to take from my father? We we maybe we're more similar than I thought." So, and then we come back to the chorus. You know, the father is still gone. He still hears him in his dreams. And then the third dream in the song. I feel like this dream is 
is from the uh, the young adult Stuart. He's he's past adolescence. He's an adult now, and and Stuart really was old beyond his years when you think about it. I mean, he got married very young for many of for what many people would consider to be an age to get married. He had kids young. He was writing incredible songs young. He just was a guy who seemed older than his years. So when I think of like a 21, 22-year-old Stuart, or 24 when he wrote this, I, I think of someone who was probably already fairly knowledgeable about things, more so than maybe most 24-year-olds or 22-year-olds would have been. Certainly certainly when I'm thinking about myself, I can't put myself in the in the shoes of where Stuart seemed to be when he was at that age because he seemed to already be so – uh, cogent with the things that he was writing about and thinking about and just seemed to have such a focused worldview already. But uh, I get the feeling that this third dream came from that type of place where he was. And it's interesting because now he, he's he's dreaming. There, there are all kinds of themes of death again in this dream, but it's not just the great father being taken from him. It's He sees his father almost he he sees his father as a man now in this third dream as an aging man he he sails him in into a swamp in a black boat and now instead of being this giant force of power that he's so proud of the father's hands are shaking and he's talking to him about things like shame and and pain again and and when he says i felt your hand shake he, it, it's such a powerful line because he can he can see the humanity of his father. It's not this mythological force anymore. It's just a man. And it's someone who has the same uh, problems and the same uh, issues and the same weaknesses that he has. And he re- he realizes that now. You go through these points in a, in life where you you think of your parents as these great forces. And then you go through a point where you almost hate them. And then you get to a point when you get older and you think, wow, they were just trying their best. They they were just like me. They 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 were doing the best that they could. They didn't have all the answers. They never had all the answers. And he's seeing his father that way in this third part of the dream. He's, he doesn't see the sword anymore. He says, I never see the sword. You always seem so hard, and now you don't seem that way anymore. And and then again, we get the closure of the whole enemy thing, where he, I find the enemy has to feel the same as me. He He realizes that his father, who maybe at one point he did view as an enemy for whatever reason. We can only speculate, but probably that should, the typical reasons that kids view parents as enemies at some point. And now he, he sees him as someone who's just like him and, and who is, he, maybe he sees him at the end where they're on, they're on equal ground, they're on equal footing, and he finally comes to that realization that the father is just as full as weakness and, and those types of things as, as he was. So I, I just think it's a it's a it's an incredible lyric this whole this whole song and it it takes you through those three phases of of growing up and it does it so powerfully and so poetically and it's so beautiful and then it, it still ends with the with the plaintive chorus that keeps repeating and and there's this just the sense that he's missed something from his father uh from his father's presence in his life throughout his life and again we can't get into the specifics nor would we necessarily want to but it's it's an incredibly deeply personal song and maybe the most personal song that Stewart had ever written up until this time. I, I can't think of another one offhand that I would say was as personal as this one. Um, so that's my interpretation of the lyrics. I know I took a long time going through that. I'm not going to take as long going through the music. Uh, music, we've got 
maybe music that's almost at odds at some in some respects with the the darkness and the melancholy of the lyrics because the music is just so big but on the other hand it's not just necessarily joyous music there's a sense of melancholy now that i talk about it that goes through the music at times too and that's what always reeled me in in the beginning but we've got yet another amazing amazing intro of a song in an album just full of incredible intros and this may be one of the more popular ones in uh, the big country canon, we've got the the intro of Stewart playing this guitar part with a coin. We've talked about this many times using a digital delay, and he played with a coin to give it this really bizarre, almost uh, synthesizer sound. In fact, when I first heard it, that's what I thought it was. I had no idea you could coax those sounds out of out of a guitar. And I was even listening big into U two at the time. They were my favorite band, and I didn't even think that the you know I didn't even listen to the Edge as much as I was listening to him. I didn't think that this was something that could have been done from a guitar. So I was shocked when I found out that it was created with a guitar. And I, I'd heard also that Stewart had done this in the skids, too. I'd have to go, dig back and see exactly where, but certainly not as pronounced as he did here. So great guitar part. And if you listen again in headphones, as I always say as we're talking about this album, you can hear that little part weaving throughout the song. It's not just in the beginning. It's kind of weaving in and out of the song, and it really adds a great little rhythmic underlining uh, feel to that musically and there's this one part at the beginning of tall ships go it's one of my favorite guitar moments on the album from stewart and it's it's in the intro and he's playing the the melodic lead part and then it goes to this this part i'm not going to sing it so let me just play it right here it's just this really cool little I don't want to say dissonant because it's not a dissonant part, but it's just this great little line. I love it. I love that part, and I I look for that when they play that live. So it's it's very very cool to uh to uh, hear it. And even when I figured this out on acoustic guitar, I tried to make sure that I figured out some way to play that little note. So that's one of my favorite parts about this song musically. It is nice. It's a screeching little tone. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that that's lovely. I I like it too. It's it's one of those things you never think about, but you take it for granted. And it would leave a hole in the song if it wasn't there. So I think if someone just took it out to test me, I would say, what the hell? Because it's such an important part of that, that bit of the song. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Great part. Um, we've got just beautiful, melodic lead lines that are classic big country that, that play throughout. Great melodies on the lead. Uh, spine tingling, really. And I know Stuart back then was all, often talking about he would always when he wrote a song, he was always going for something that would that would send that tingle up the spine. I think that was actually his exact words, something about sending the tingle up and down your spine. And he certainly achieved it here, as he achieved on so many of the songs here. Um, it, it's a song that takes its time, as so many of Stewart's songs do. You've got, you've got an almost... Uh, it's kind of an unorthodox way of, of structuring a song, which is actually an orthodox way in, in Stewart's the way Stewart writes, but we've got a verse and then there's kind of a long time of a, of a, a relatively long musical interlude between verses, which I really love. It's, it's just setting this, this slow pace of the song, even though the music is anything but slow paced. Um, the, again, another great bridge, uh, when, when we get to the, uh, I dreamed or, I, I dreamed that you sailed me into a swamp, that bridge part. Love how it slows down there. Love Tony's bass playing in there. And especially when Stewart says, you spoke to me of shame. If you listen to Tony's bass playing when while Stewart is singing that line, it's just so good. It's so good. And 
so many superlatives of Tony's bass playing in this in this album, but here's another of many examples. But the, in that line especially, just so many great little melodic lines that he plays, and it's just incredible. Uh, they even bring in some... There, there are a lot of ringing, ringing chords throughout this song rather than the constant barrage of, of parts that are played in some of the songs on side one, which is why I think this song has more of a, an airy feel to it and more space in it. There, there are more chords that they just let ring. And you kind of get that toward the end, too, where you'll get these distorted chords that come in um, at the end of the song, sort of on the outro and the last chorus. And uh, just absolutely love it. Love that juxtaposition of the distorted chords with these beautiful clean melodies and 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 then the lead the great melodic lead playing and then it ends on this nice unresolved note which i i love when songs end like that and it it just kind of ends there and then the chord rings out and it's not really a resolved note that it ends on so it's kind of a there's more of this story to come sort of feel to it that we've gotten on some other big country songs in the past. And by the way, this is another thing that I wanted to mention is that every song on side two just comes to an end except for just a shadow. Whereas every song on side one fades out uh, except for steel town, which is kind of interesting. And now you could say where the rose stone doesn't really fade out, but it, it does blend in, into come back to me. It's not really a definitive ending. It kind of blends right into come back to me. All the other songs on side one have fade outs and the great majority of songs on side two have definitive endings, which I think is kind of interesting. I don't know if that was something that was, they were thinking about and I don't know, but it's just another way that kind of sets side two apart from side one. So that's really uh, just to sum up, I guess. And of course I can't leave out Mark's drumming on this. One of, one of Mark's, most signature drum parts. Uh, in fact, years ago when I was working on some music, I, I had to hire a drummer to uh, record uh, with me on some of the songs that I was working on. And I remember giving him Steel Town, and there was a song and I, I, that I had that I wanted some similar drums to Tall Ships Go, and I remember giving him Steel Town. And this guy was a big Stuart Copeland fan, and I said, listen to this, listen to Tall Ships Go especially, and that's exactly the kind of drums I want on this song. <laughs> And he was a really good drummer, this guy, but he, he and he knew who Mark Brzezicki was, but he came back and listened to this and he was like, wow, that's incredible. I don't know if I can do that. And I was like, well, I know, I know you probably can't, but just do your best. If this is, I don't mean I want you to copy Tall Ships Go. I just mean I, I want that kind of feel with the toms and everything. And, and he did a good job with it. But man, it's when you when I point to signature Mark Brzezicki drum parts, this would be one of the songs I would point to. And I think when he did this at the Zandam comp, uh, uh, conference or whatever it was, a convention, um, he broke out a bunch of his f- most favorite uh, drum parts. And when he played the intro to Tall Ships Go, I remember just feeling, oh, that's so incredible that you hear this song come to life. I think uh, I'll play uh, Tall Ships Go. Who remembers that one? This 
when we'd asked Stuart about it, he was like, no, you can never play that song live. And I can never recreate the intro. And I would just be like, oh, come on. Don't try to recreate it exactly. Just play it. It's such an incredible song. And I'm so happy that the guys have played this song live. It's, it's such a thrill to hear this song live. And, um, and I just had fun listening back to the interview with Bruce a couple of years ago when you said Mike had said that uh, the band should be playing Tall Ships Go. And Bruce's reaction was, oh, but Mike is... is is mad you know, it can't be done Mike will say all kinds of things don't take him serious he's mad he's a nutter <laughs> right yeah we know that to be the case the yeah. grandiose grandiose ideas of Mike Peters but but here they, we are yeah and they've proven that they could be done they've proven that it could be done they did a great job and uh, hmm. so this this is one of my favorite songs on the album um, way way up there uh, I just love every every note every word of it it's a song I would never skip, and it's a gorgeous song. It's comes to me. It's come to mean even more to me as a parent. Um, and I'm, I'm amazed I was able to get through this without choking up because it's 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 one of those songs now, especially that uh, that that gives me the lump in my throat whenever I think about it. So hmm. that's all I got for Tall Ships Go, which is plenty. It's all you got, man. <laughs> <laughs> the scraps we get <laughs> no but uh, that's uh, that's re- that's really good and uh, I um, I listened to it and uh, I don't know if there's too much more I can add I can add that uh, the song uh, <clears throat> for some reason this is one song that should strike close to home to me and it, it kind of does but I, I never I'm never close to being choked up by it and this is kind of strange because I had a father who sailed uh, at sea worked at sea when I was young from the mid to the late 70s wow so, so he, he was actually out on a boat gone for weeks and months at a time then home for a while and then out again wow I never think much back at those years Now I actually found a letter he wrote me in the uh, sort of 76, 7 thereabouts and he wrote one to me this was before I started school but he wrote in all caps so it would be easy for me to read it and I still <laughs> found it and that was that was kind of a touching throwback because frankly I don't think much back to those years because at the late 70s he stopped doing that and he started working from home so he could be at home with the family mm. so uh, I never got to be the age when I started saying well you go all the time don't be gone and stay home and kind of the, the, st- the thing that you're going through with your kids now right so uh, so I never got to that stage and uh, so I don't think much about it, but this is a song that should ring through for there. Uh, as an adult and as a father now, whenever I've gone, it's <laughs> I say, okay, dad's going, and I get an okay, bye. <laughs> right. <laughs> so much for that. He know he he knows I'll be home soon. So this is clearly not. I'm never gone weeks and certainly not months and uh, and I, I don't even travel that much anymore as I used to uh, some years ago so uh, no this is but it's a great song and it's it. Um, what is more poignant to me is I don't think of it in terms of my own being a father but in terms of my father and me there, there are interesting aspects to it but I think uh, taking a step back and looking at Tall Ships Go uh, it kind of strikes me how much the father role has changed over the years because it really has changed a lot and you just have to go back a couple of generations to see how drastic this changes and I see some of that in this song 
where these days it's more normal for a husband and wife to have an equal partnership but also a father these days will have a much closer relationship with their children and take an interest in their interests and they know who their friends are you know what goes on at school what they're doing all these things and right. kids just relate very different to their fathers now than they did even when we were young with our fathers not to mention how our fathers related to theirs so I think this goes back a bit to, to those days, and uh, especially the line which you highlighted, which is, uh, and you seem so bright and hard, like a bloody edge of sword, which is a very unique way of describing it. But if you think back, the father was someone you respected and perhaps even feared, because back in those days, the rod was not always spared. Kids would get spanked if they did something wrong, and that's just how it was back then. And today, we're kind of shocked to hear of it happening whenever it happens and unfortunately sometimes it is still happening but uh, that's a different discussion uh, the, the point is you, you would have this very authoritative father figure that was very normal so the child will to some degree develop an image of the father as an enemy figure I think it comes early through there and not necessarily an active enemy figure just someone you respect slash fear yeah. out of that authority which is very firmly established whenever you fall out of line so when you're young and the father is still strong looking invincible and looking very very authoritative indeed the image of the father as an enemy figure prevails and we see that in the song and uh, also as you pointed out over time that changes and this song takes us to a point in the narrative and I, I never thought of it as the three different faces that you brought up I, I found that very interesting uh, I saw it more as a narrative where at the time of the song the image of the father quote-unquote enemy is changing and you see the now you always seemed so hard now I never see the sword and uh, basically as you as you get to that age uh, first the sword goes and then you also see well actually I'm growing up to be my dad I'm, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, I'm becoming my dad which is the the thing at first you fear but then actually there's a comfort in it there's a there's a line that goes through and hopefully bring the best things with you so uh the, the climax of the song is really the the swamp segment to call it like that i always found it interesting because the swamp is kind of still wetlands but it's very shallow wetlands so it's still the father's domain as a sailor sea water but now it's more, much more shallow so i don't know if the swamp means that and uh, the way they sing, in a black boat, I don't know, what, what does that mean? Does it mean that matter that the boat is black? But uh, the conversation they have there, even though it's dreamed, that uh, the father actually, there, there's a crack in his armor, and his hand is shaking, and he is speaking. And the line of the shame that the earth will bring, that's, um, I don't think I would even try to dissect it, but uh, there is something there that obviously at that point is exposed and the father tries to talk about it but uh, that's probably a tough conversation to have from the father and tough to be on the receiving end because it's so unusual and I know this uh, from uh, speaking to my own father about certain things there's um, there are certain things that you know you don't go to the depths of emotion and the shame that the earth will bring I don't know what it means uh, I, I will just forever be fascinated by that line and that's kind of like the the entire crux of the song leads up to that point i feel like it's and more the, like uh like general shame like 
I don't necessarily look at it as a specific shame of something specific that the father had done or was a part of. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, just kind of like uh, almost puts you back into this feeling that we've got from side one of all these people who are this sense that they get as they've worked so hard and aren't finding, aren't getting where they want to, to be. And I think when you reach a certain age and you still feel that way, there is a certain shame that, that seeps in. So it's almost like the shame of, Mm. Not being able to achieve what you want to achieve, what what you wanted to achieve for your kids, for your family, for yourself, and and maybe maybe that's the way to look at it. Okay, yeah, that's uh, very possible. Uh, I definitely saw it as something that is, is emerging over the years, and that definitely fits with that. But it's still a very poignant point in the song, and uh, and like you've all said uh, in in your discussion of the song, I don't know if there's much more to to add to it. It's a really strong song and definitely a very personal song. You have you have basically uh, stolen all my thunder. <laughs> so I mean, no problem. But that's that, that's that's brilliant. I, I no no problem with that. I just need to. It's my goal in life. Yeah, as long as you do it well, then, then I don't I, I don't care. You have the opportunity to steal mine on the next few, or at least the next one. If if there's thunder to be stolen, then <laughs> perhaps. Okay, I'll, I'll just redo it and put it like this. Uh, I think as we grow older, we all see a mortality in our fathers. They are simply not the invincible rocks that stand forever strong. They are human after all, and they're immortal. And one day they will not be here anymore. And uh, this song is basically realizing a lot of that mortality, I think, and realizing your father is mortal and the dread of your father being gone is, is felt throughout the song. So I don't know, the, the song never refers to an actual conversation going on now with the father. It's always in dreams. Mm. So you don't know if the father is already gone, maybe lost at sea or, or what it is, or if it's only in dreams you can have that closeness with your father because of the, the armor that is put up and the strongness of the father. So that's also a very uh, interesting aspect of the song. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating tune, just like so many on here that you could dissect over and over and over again. But we've already done that. <laughs> we've yeah, just I, we've I, just I, done I it. <laughs> I guess we did. So uh, yeah, that's it. So do you have a favorite lyric from this tune? Yeah, that would be the the shame that the earth will bring. Oh, nice. I I, th- I think mine is a little different on this because it's not necessarily a lyric, but it's just a line, uh, and that's the one a pride that grows in hardship. Because even though that's not necessarily necessarily a great poetic lyric, as as we've talked about other lyrics that we've discussed, to me that line is just so important because I think that really sums up big country's music in so many ways, a pride that grows in hardship. So that's yeah. that's the one that really sticks with me. There's so many beautiful lines in this, but that one really stands out to me. Well, maybe we should count those because I think it's mentioned in uh, several songs. Yeah, I'm sure it is. I know pride is, definitely, and that whole sense of... Being pride mm. is like a working class pride, I think. Uh, so yeah, yeah, definitely. So what about right. what about ranking? Uh, I rank this as number six. Oh wow, big discrepancy on this one. I, this is my number two. Yeah, well, you know, I, I kind of uh, I, I shot my wad on the, on side A, <laughs> one, two, three, and Ew. four. You have there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. You've got the big four on that side, so. I did. Yeah, I, I I put this as number two. So yeah, 
great. Okay, and that does it for episode 40, part two of our discussion of Steeltown. We will be back next time with more of this, <laughs> whatever this is. We will be back next time with more of it, and we hope you'll be listening. Let us know what you think. We really love to hear back from you guys, so uh, please let us know that this is all worthwhile, because it really is, not to sound like a, a podcast martyr, martyr here, but it really is a lot of work to put these things together. So we enjoy it, or we wouldn't do it. So I'm not trying to ask anyone to feel sorry for us, but uh, just letting you know that hearing back from you what you think of it really does mean a lot and it kind of keeps us going and keeps us inspired to continue these so find us on facebook the great divide podcast just search for that big country podcast at gmail.com is our email address and find us on twitter at big country pod so we will see you soon we will talk to you next time as we continue with our steel town deep dive discussion thank you goodbye It is good. It's damn good shit. Have it you. 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 Have it you.